Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what's going on tonight? Oh, same old, same old. I think, though, it's time to finally discuss Strange New Worlds. Okay, so... I've seen the first three, I'm, so I'm one behind. I guess two now that it's Wednesday and the new episode has dropped. But and by the time the people listen to this, you're, we're going to be like eight episodes, behind. right? Most of the way through the season. First three episodes, I continue to enjoy it. Oh yeah. So if you so, if you've seen the first three, you've right. got the uh, the season opener, the Klingon, uh, the, the the Klingon War the court case, and the time travel. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, this this continues to be a character show. It's so much about who these people are, and we're really getting, we're digging deeper into that. We haven't had the, like, I mean, the first one had some a big action piece, but two and three were much quieter than that and even then episode one the biggest action piece was two characters who aren't the action characters as we'd seen the the chapel and our doctor getting jacked up on venom and beaten up on klingons oh you aspired to starfleet i was born to it um yeah it really hasn't been that long since i've seen them but that first episode is a complete blank right now the first episode was by far the most plotty it was a quest it was like okay let's go and we have to stop the we have to stop the war i mean the thing that is most notable about it and the season so far is the glorious wonderful intentionally horribly accented carol kane who is just delightful who's only in i think like the two episodes no well i mean to this point like she wasn't she wasn't in last week's maybe she's in this week's who knows but she's more like a recurring guest star than you know somebody who's permanently part of the season at least I think the episode you have yet to watch among the Lotus Eaters is the best so far. Okay. The time travel, it was certainly very evocative of many of the other Star Trek time travel stories. Like they were clearly going for city on the edge of forever. I don't know if they quite got there, but it was, it was fun to watch them try. I understand in a way why they were doing what they did with, oh, from now on, if there's any inconsistencies in the timeline, something happened with a Romulan time agent and the temporal cold war. And that explains any little weirdness in the timeline. But I say this is a comic book fan. So I think 
we have a, a very specific view of continuity. Mm. We more than I think any other fandom accept that continuity is a moving target and you have to sort of accept that not everything is going to line up forever. And so I sat back with that. It's like, okay, that's it's a somewhat elegant solution to that problem, but it's not really a problem. And just suck it up if the timeline doesn't quite work out. I enjoy like getting into the lore. Like I, those are always fun little bits for me, especially as they continue to flesh out developments in the prime directive. And apparently like Robert April was responsible for calling it the prime directive. Like that was a cool little tidbit, but if you're going to time travel and say that this moment is critical in history, like we didn't get any details about Toronto. Don't know what year it was. Don't know like what happened after this, split like yeah toronto you know disappears in you know a a huge fireball like how does that change the course of earth development like there was no i wanted some exposition there we had plenty of kirk having these delightful little moments uh walking around and that's cute but the lore should mean something and so that left me a little cold avoiding a specific year is to avoid having to once again do a retcon later. I know. That was very intentional, especially because the Star Trek fans are so... Not all Star Trek fans, but the online, rabid Star Trek fans are so fiddly. The complaints about the Klingon makeup in the first season of Discovery. Yes, it's a different design, and... You might not like the design. I was not particularly in love with the design. But the fact that you're looking for in-universe explanations as Uh -uh. to why, oh, we have better makeup technology, so we wanted to do something different because we can. No, you're looking for there to be a reason for simple cosmetic decisions. Repeat to yourself, it's just a show. You should really just relax. They got to just give up trying to explain the differences in Klingons. It was a funny joke as a one line in the episode of DS9 where they travel back to the trouble with Tribbles. It was just a one-off line about when everybody sees the Klingons, they look at Worf, they look at the Klingons, and Worf just goes, we don't like to talk about it. And that was it. You hand-waved it away, but then they tried to come up with an in-universe explanation and enterprise, and all that did was feed the beast of, oh, every time we see a slightly different design for an alien, it is in-universe. I mean, how are you going to explain when we finally see good looks at the Gorn by the end of this season, I assume? How are we going to explain the difference between CG Gorn and a dude in a lizard suit? Mm, let's not try for that (laughs) i agree i specifically read you and mark's review of episode two i completely understand that the legal proceeding does not hold water because it's no but i loved what they were saying in the episode yes the the emotional core was absolutely solid as an allegory for ethnic sexual 
you know, religious, any kind of minority you could think of, the allegory works, but the details got really messy and really dumb. And finding a way to get this particular edge case to work while not fixing the problem, because it is a big deal, the genetic engineering laws in Deep Space Nine. There are numerous episodes that have to do with a genetically modified human. So you couldn't fix it. Oh, one other thing that I will say that I have been very pleased with, props for casting a non-white actor as young Khan. Yes, that was a good call. It was just, it would have been so easy to get a little white kid. And it's like, oh, wait, no, you actually were paying attention. Good on you. And uh, one thing that I think maybe Mark mentioned in some of our texts afterwards talking about after we wrapped up that review, what if it was leaving the gun in Khan's room that started him off in this path of being a homicidal, brutal dictator. As we watched the end of that episode, Amber was like, you left a gun in the room with like a 10-year-old. That can't end well. Khan gets blamed for shooting the people there, and that's what starts him. This unjust accusation and punishment and yeah. Oh, time travel, timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly. Lon is the source of her own misery. And, you know, I a lot of online, not full-on hate, but a lot of like, oh, that's not Jim Kirk. Is he the greatest actor? Is it the great, greatest performance you've seen on any of the new Star Treks? No. I think he's perfectly fine. I think he, he has charm. He had zero charm in his appearance at the conclusion of season one. That just didn't work. But he was also cast in a more adversarial role. Like he was going up against uh, Captain Daddy. And that was hard for a lot of us to watch. But he had some real moments to shine in uh, episode three. And I think those softer things did work. And we saw a little bit more of the charisma. And I was accepting of him by the end of that. I love that Jim Kirk hustles people at chess. Oh, oh, it's this this 2D version. It's it's for morons. It's so easy to write Kirk as a meathead, as rush in and shoot first, ask questions later. People forget that he beat the Kobayashi Maru by reprogramming it. He's not a dummy. He's the youngest captain in Starfleet for a reason. We've had our, our bi-weekly-ish Star Trek talk. Batman time. Batman with laser guns. Batman with all manner of craziness. Because this week, it's three stories that take Batman out of Gotham and send him on globetrotting adventures. Our first story of the night is Batman Europa. This is Batman Europa numbers one through four. The writers are Matteo Casali and Brian Azzarello. Layouts by Giuseppe Comancoli. Pencils by Jim Lee Comancoli. Diego Latour and Gerald Perel, inks by Lee Kamenkoli, Latour and Perel, colors by Alex Sinclair, Kamenkoli and Perel, letters by Pat Rousseau, edited by Jim Chadwick and David Pena, with cover dates of January to April of 2016. 
Batman finds himself infected with a virus that is quickly killing him. While he initially suspects Joker, it turns out Joker has been infected as well. Now Batman must travel Europe and work with his nemesis to find a cure before time runs out. So let's be honest about what this book is and what it really aspires to be. And it's just kind of a neat little art experiment. Yes. We've got three great European artists, one great American artist. We've got one of those European artists who's willing to do layouts for all four books for him and the other three to work on. And we want to do some pretty art of four European cities because we don't want everybody just drawing off. Very loosely tied together with a story. It's fine for what it is. Yeah. But there's not much there there. Now, there is more there there than, um, what is it, Lee? What's his last name? Bermejo. Yeah. The Batman Noel and then the thing he did recently that we read. Oh, right. That was just his pinups with text over it. Yeah. There is more substance here, but it's still not a whole lot. There are interesting ideas here, but none of them are fleshed out terribly much. And the big bad, the hidden hand totally comes out of left field. Yes. The ending of this story is just sort of rushed because we have a mysterious villain and I'll be completely honest. And we know when I say this, it means something. I'd forgotten how this ended. <laughs> I, as did I, I remember reading it and thinking it was kind of interesting as like this European travel log but yeah, I was like, oh, shit, it's Bane. That's random. What it reminds me of having that is an inferior version of the end of Tinian's Joker. Yeah. Where it also turns out to be Bane, but it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, you could see what they were doing here. Uh, okay, what if we had a showdown between Batman and Joker and Bane in the Coliseum? Wouldn't that be tits? It's a great idea. I wish we had built more to it. And this is the way Bane should be written in many ways. He's built this Machiavellian plan that has dragged Batman across Europe. That's the kind of thing Bane should do. In my head, there's not a lot of explanation there. But I like the idea that Bane's kind of jealous of Batman and Joker's rivalry. So he's just like, I will pit them against each other. Yeah, I'm not going to keep doing that voice. Because that is not how Comic Bane sounds. Comic Bane sounds like Hector Elizondo. My reading is Bane thinking, well, I've broken him physically. I could break him physically again if I wanted to. What if I tried to break him mentally? What if he had to come to realize that he cannot live without Joker quite literally and to give batman the moral choice in the end he could finally be rid of joker and he wouldn't have to actively do anything 
he would just have to choose inaction in his own sacrifice. And if Joker hadn't taken the option out of Bruce's hands, I think Bruce might have seriously thought about it. But Joker's Joker. And as he says at one point or another in the story, do you really think you're so important that I would endanger my own life? Dream on, Bats. Uh, Joker does enjoy living. He does. Now, we have four fairly different artists on this book. When I got to issue three, I thought we were going somewhere particular. And I think thematically, I would have flipped the artists on issues three and four. Because you start out with Jim Lee, who's so tight and so realistic. And then you got Cumin Coley, who's fairly realistic, but whose features are such somewhat exaggerated. Then you get Latour, who's so loose and weird and surreal. Almost abstractions. Right. And Batman is saying throughout this whole thing that this virus, the Colossus virus, is not just affecting him physically, but he feels his mind, his mind is feeling looser. And I thought, okay, then we're going to get to issue four and the art there is going to be just completely buck wild. And frankly, Perel, while much looser than Lee or Kamen Coley, is more realistic than Latour. And I kind of wish they had flipped it. So you had the loosest, weirdest art at the very end. I think the problem with that, though, is that issue four you just don't do a whole lot right you get to the you get to the reveal you get to the fisticuffs and that's it in three you're going through the sewers and you see this gathering of joker fans and visually there's more in issue three i I absolutely see your argument if there was more story if there was more developments you know a fifth issue Like maybe you start the first issue with house style, right? Just straight laced, buttoned up. And then you kind of organize the story a little bit differently. And you figure out some more interesting visuals by the time that fifth issue rolls around. And you have that artist there. And yeah, I absolutely think like narratively that would have really worked. The thing with issue three is I'm sitting here and I'm reading this and it's like, are we really doing the the French love Jerry Lewis thing, but with the Joker? Yeah. We are absolutely doing We're fucking doing it. Oh, the French get me. Get in the car, loser. We're doing Jerry Lewis jokes. Yes. And initially I was annoyed because one of the stories pretty high on the big board is that Spectre issue where in New York, there are the kids who have the Joker club and that pisses Joker off and he goes to massacre them. But I see that, oh, this is different because there Joker thought they were just kind of co-opting his image to be edgy and you know to, to be shocking. Here, he feels like they get him. So he's accepting of the fact that they are sort of using his imagery. It's not appropriation as much as homage. But I absolutely had those same 
Jerry Lewis vibes too. That was it's a good touch. I'm a genius in France. I don't know if Caselli as a writer is holding some of Azarello's harder to take habits in check. I know we've done the Joker graphic novel. I'm trying to think if we've done any other Azarello yet. Oh, um, freaking Night of Vengeance. The Thomas Wayne Flashpoint is also Azarello. Not great. No. This is, and we'll, we'll go into more detail on this, obviously, when we get there, but this is probably higher on the big board than either of those. Yeah, uh, because it doesn't have those, you know, downsides that those other two books did. I will say I was not enamored with him fridging Nina the hacker. Yeah. But when you come around to the very end and there, there is something of a story point to that. I'm sure there was a better way you could do it, but it wasn't just an arbitrary, oh, she's dead. And that drives Batman. It actually comes around with Bane taunting Batman further by pointing out that, oh, Joker... Joker said that she was dead when he got there, but no, he watched her die. And that puts Bruce in the question of, well, are we better off just letting him die? If I have to go with him, fine. That's a good way to post that question. But being it is the only female character in the book. Rough. Yeah. I wish there had been hints throughout that this was Bane because there's nothing to let you know that this is Bane no Uh, kind of a bad night for pacing overall especially you've got a point in issue two where he's hired this guy who has an army of wooden automata in Prague and when the mysterious mastermind needs to kill this guy he shoots him. You could have given us some kind of hint at that point where the mastermind snaps his neck or something to indicate that he's a physical threat. That would have given at least some kind of hint that this is Bane. I've never known Bane to use a gun. No? It just it seems like, oh, we just didn't want to give any hints so it would be a big shock at the end. Versus there being a logical string of clues you could build to. And none of the hints or the things that get them from city to city are really that great. This isn't really a mystery. This is them just traveling and dealing with this case. You couldn't have figured out any of this as you went along. It just had to sort of happen one of the clues is literally like oh we traced the hacker here right one thing that is interesting to point out about this book this is a tremendously delayed book this book was announced a decade before it actually came out whoa that's that's a delay right there yep it was announced in 05 was eventually scheduled to print in 2011 and then was finally released, as I said, cover date of January 16, which means release date of November 2015. So this took a decade to come out. I would be very curious 
to know if all four of these artists were the original artists intended for this book, or if some of the delays might have had to do with some of the European artists not being able to pull off the book and then having to reschedule. I mean, let's be fair, Jim Lee's involved, so that's going to cause a delay one way or the other. This is one of those projects that I remember being announced and then was like, well, we're never going to actually see this thing. And then when it actually came out, I was incredibly shocked. I don't think we said, but again, this is four cities over the course of the miniseries, one for each issue. And it's Berlin, Prague, Paris, and Rome. And while the opening of each issue talks about the history of the city and sort of sets the scene. I don't feel like every city was as, as integral to the plot as it could have been. And then I say it and I'm like, okay, well, Berlin, which is the city divided and you've got Batman and Joker having to work together. There's all the stuff about people burning themselves in Prague and all the fire there. Paris gives you all the Jerry Lewis jokes and Rome gives you the Colosseum. But those last two are somewhat surface. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think if there's any other thing that makes those stories particularly linked to those cities. I will say I'm happy to see that we didn't do London. A, because it's not on the continent, but B... If you've got any city in Europe where American comics take place, it's London. So it's like, okay, we're not going to do London. We're going to pick cities on the continent that Americans might have a particular view of and will be able to reinforce or subvert that as needed. How did you feel about Batman and Joker's voices in this book? I thought they worked. Yeah. Again, Azzarello, I think, gets them a little better here. And I wonder if that has to do with Matteo Casali being there along with him. In terms of plot and dialogue, all of the edges are kind of sanded off in this book. It's very palatable. Of all the stories, I wish we had seen more in Paris. I just like that idea. The if you're going to do the Joker as Jerry Lewis thing, I wish we had been able to spend more time with that. That was the only one of these four issues where there was more going on than Batman and Joker are looking for the mastermind to get the cure for this virus. Yeah. The rest of them, there's not really much theme to it other than what is presented in those introductions about the city you're not getting much plot. You're just getting action. And that there's like, oh, well, that's an interesting idea. And I wish we had been able to spend more time with that. I guess you could chalk it up to the Colossus virus impairing Bruce's mental faculties. But if it was Bane under this Batman-Joker hybrid costume in Paris... He's fought Bane how many times? He knows how Bane fights. He knows how Bane moves. He should have realized that that was Bane. 
Yeah, I just I'd totally forgotten that there was that weird bat joker thing. It's like, oh, we're we're still a little before the Batman who laughs, but we're getting a, a proto Batman who laughs here. That is a concept that is great and then has diminishing returns. We will someday discuss that when we discuss more stuff to do with the Batman who laughs. You know, it was really all downhill from his first scene. Metal? He was interesting to have as this this, this character in Metal. And then you get the miniseries. And there's stuff in that miniseries that works. And it's the, the art from Jock is beautiful. But everything past that, all the stuff Snyder does with him in Justice League... All the stuff in death metal. It's like, okay, we've had too much of this character. The concept that he is, I can't remember where I heard, but someone somewhere online, someone addressed him as, it makes perfect sense because he comes from the dark multiverse. It's the place where bad ideas go to die and he escapes. I had never thought about it that way. And I, okay, I can kind of see that. But we're not discussing the Batman who laughs tonight. Um, not yet. Not yet. Someday we'll get there. Uh, do you have anything else? I don't have anything else. That means it's time to put Batman Europa on the big board. We are getting ever so close to 300 stories on the big board. This is our, is this our 90... This is our 96th episode. 96th episode. Yes, indeed. So as of the beginning of this episode, we have 285 stories in the big board. Number one is still Batman Gear One, the post-crisis origin of Batman. Down at number 50 is Batman the Man Who Laughs, the Ed Brubaker, Doug Monkey retelling of the first Batman Joker story. Coming in at a sexy 69, it's Batman Birth of the Demon. Down at number 100 is Half an Evil, the Neil Adams, Denny O'Neill, Two-Face Story. Smash Smash and grab. Down at 150 is Catch as Cat Scan, the Batman Catwoman Joker Story by Mike Barr and Alan Davis. Poor Catwoman gets her brain scrambled. Yep. 200 is Oblation. A story about the Alfred Leslie Tompkins relationship. At 250 is Beware of Poison Ivy, the first Poison Ivy story. And 285 is Still White Knight. Boo. So we said this is going to go above either of the other Azarello stories that we already have. Which Joker's at 232. Right. And Night of Vengeance is at 244. So that's even below that. This has got more substance than Batman Noel, as I said. And that's yes. at 218. It shares certain elements with uh, the resurrection of Rachel Ghoul at 215, in that I feel like there was more we should have seen here to flesh this out. But this is less scattershot than Resurrection of Rachel Ghoul. There is at least one consistent idea working through this. So I think this is better than that. 
All right, so let's look at 200 is Oblation. Is this better than Oblation? I think so. And what I'm looking at right now as an analog of art that is very good and a story that is either bad or kind of non-existent, Brave in the Mold at 181, I think is a very good analog to this project. It's interesting because I was looking shortly below that at 184, World's Finest, which is another one with absolutely stunning art and a story that's all over the joint. So, I, yeah, I think somewhere in the one low 170s to mid 170s to mid 180s is where we're looking here. It is not better than Blades at 177. It's close to your birthday. Uh, no need to fight with you on that one. I don't think it's better than right below that, 178, which is Injustice Year One, Volume Two. There's more to that story. I'd be willing to, to hear an argument on that if you so feel. No, no, I don't. I don't, uh, I don't believe so. Brave in the Mold. That story is just not, not good. That um, that story falls apart at the very end, and feels to me like it has the ending that tom king wanted to he wanted that ending and he reverse engineered that story from an ending he wanted to get to but that made the ending not feel justified because he didn't do it right it didn't reverse engineer properly i think no story is preferable to bad story fair so if we're going above that, right above that is Heart of Hush. I'm agnostic on that question. Yeah. Aside from Hush is bad. I like the ambition Paul Dini has of being like, okay, Hush is a non-character. Let me try to give this non-character enough background and motivation to make them matter beyond being a plot device. Stop trying to make hush happen. I think that is about as good a hush story as you will ever possibly get. Yikes. I mean, we haven't read a better hush story, have we? Hush is on the shelf for the rest of this year. <laughs> Keep that I, in mind. I am aware. No more hush for the rest of the year. I would drop this below heart of hush above brave in the mold. I like that. New 181. New 181. I have no idea where Matt's going next since he didn't go chronological tonight. I have various theories on how to do this. This particular week, this was the story that inspired the episode theme. So I did that first. Ah. I wonder I, if we're going to go reverse chronological. I'm about to find out. I can't wait. You are about to find out. Next is Batman, the Scottish Connection. Ah, reverse chronological it is. It is. This is a one-shot written by Alan Grant with art by Frank Quitely, colors by Matt Hollingsworth and Brad Matthews, letters by Bill Oakley, and edited by Denny O'Neill and Jordan B. Gorfinkel. The cover date is September of 1998. What should have been a nice vacation for Bruce Wayne visiting his ancestral lands in Scotland turns into something deadlier. A mystery presents itself, and Batman is caught up in an intrigue dating back centuries. 
This, I feel like, is one of the more uh, obscure things on the, the big board in terms of impact and current availability. We had to turn over some uh, some stones to find this. It is currently available in one trade that's not digital. I can't remember how much I paid for this on uh, on the Amazon. I don't think it was that much. It ain't collectible, uh, but it's a weird little trade too. Got this story, uh, something from Mark Wade, and then another story from Alan Grant. It's kind of bizarre that it was thrown together this way. This is one that I... Oh boy, it's a Batman comic that came out sometime in the anywhere from the mid '80s to present. Guess who owns a copy of this book? It's funny when you mention this. In my head, I thought that this was a Morrison. A because of the Quitely art and Morrison and Quitely work together quite often. Also because this has some weird history to it that fits some of those things that you expect out of a Morrison. But it also works as an Alan Grant because we've, as we've seen, Grant also enjoys some British, Scottish, etc. history and societal commentary, and we get some of that here. You know what this story made me think of, and it's going to be totally random. You remember Goldeneye? Sure. Yeah, and how um, Sean Bean's character. You know, turncoat 007, motivated by this uh, historic portrayal of his people by the British. Same kind of like centuries old angst. Or, well, in, in GoldenEye's case, it was only what, 50 years, something like that. But with this, I was like, at some point, you got to let this go, man. I'm about to hit Matt's favorite mantra. I read this when it first came out. <laughs> in of course you did. So I have not revisited this since 1998. I did not understand a lot of the like weird cultural conspiratorial context in this story. A large plot point in this story involved Rosalind Chapel. Have you ever read or seen The Da Vinci Code? I don't think so. I definitely didn't read it. I feel like I avoided uh, the movie. Rosalind Chapel is a big plot point in the Da Vinci Code as well. All that stuff that they're talking about in Rosalind Chapel is actual historical conspiracy theory. The one thing that people who aren't conspiracy wackos tend to point out when someone brings up that you know this templar chapel in scotland is that the templars were wiped out a century and a half before the chapel was ever built so you you can't let facts get in the way of a good conspiracy matt right so you have to believe the the theories that the knights templar went underground and have been involved with the illuminati and things like that for all of those theories to actually line up and work. Oh, of course. Uh, So this being summer term, I'm teaching a class on conspiracies right now. And for the past week or so, I've been watching with my class Loose Change, which is the 9-11 conspiracy documentary. It's so bad. It's (laughs) so bad and stupid and amateurish. 
And we finally got to the point where I, I share with my students this nicely done National Geographic thing that basically demolishes every point uh, that loose change makes. And it not only does that, but it also has the loose change guy on there. And it kind of studies him as it's studying 9-11 uh, and these other you know conspiracy theorists. And it just makes the point that yeah, these guys are wacko nut jobs, and you can present them with all the science in the world, and they won't believe it. Aren't they weird? Weird is a word for it. Depressing's another. I can go either way on this one. Uh, yeah, uh, I am simultaneously fascinated and outraged by conspiracy theories. I miss the late '90s when conspiracy theories were fun. Yeah, and our parents, right? They had JFK, right? That was their national tragedy, their conspiracy. It's not emotional for us. You know, we lived through 9-11, so we get pissed off with these wackos and nut jobs. And I'm sure you get more pissed off. That's, that's your neck of the woods. My brother saw the planes hit the tower. Oh, Jesus He was Christ. in high school in Jersey City, right across the river driving i went to the same private high school driving up the main drag to get to there you were driving with the tower with the sun rising between the towers christ almighty Uh he saw it happen if you want conspiracy theories that piss me off get me in front of a holocaust denier oh yeah we uh we started the semester with anti-semitism not a good time and i'm not and i am not even technically jewish that doesn't matter to them. My last name is no. Lasowitz. Believe me. But you ask a Jew, it's my father's Jewish, not my mother. So I'm not technically a Jew. But that doesn't matter to anybody who's an anti-Semite. But we're we're not even talking about Batman. We need to, 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 to turn into the skid. Turn into the skid. Back to the Scottish connection. Right. This is fun, and it's certainly pretty. It's still earlier, quaintly, but it looks nice. Quaintly is an artist that some people don't particularly like. I've never gotten that. I always thought Quaintly is just stylish and has a great sense of motion. I love the way shadows and faces are great. Yes. He also draws one of the more barrel chested, broad Bruce Waynes. His Superman is second to none. All Star Superman is partially made by how quietly draws morrison's story there but we're again we're, we're skidding staying with batman we've read a lot of alan grant for this show and this is not grant at you know his best this is not last arkham this is not the nobody but this is fun this has some neat moments Not as much as our final story, but there is some bond to this story. Yeah. The set pieces feel kind of Bond-like. The fight on the train, the helicopter attacking the castle. I can see a Connery bond with that. While our last story, which we will get to, is very much more. Very more. Yes. We will, we will get there because we will, there will be definite discussions of that with that story. And I think partially it's the Scottish setting that makes me 
feel some bondiness to this. The quote unquote mystery here is not a mystery. The big reveal at the end when you've got this mysterious woman who Bruce meets and it turns out that the big bad is her brother. It's like, really? Was that supposed to be a reveal? Like you do the the panel break. You must stop, brother. Why did you have that panel break? I think anyone with half a brain who's been reading this figured out that that was her brother. There's no surprise there. Well, I wasn't going to say that I had figured it out that that was her brother. I had at least figured out that the weird woman who shows up in the first act and is like, yeah, I train birds and I'm a historian and then doesn't show up again until the fifth act talking about the same historical sadness that this villain does. I figured they were related somehow. Yeah, it was not shocking that there was some connection. And it feels like you're supposed to be like, brother, bum, bum, bum. It's like, no, there's no shock that there's this connection between the two of them. No. And the fact that they're both American. There's clearly a connection here. Well, that, that's, that's the whole point of the story, right? That they became American. The family did. Right. That we we've got this whole generational Montagues and Capulets sort of thing. That's not the best example. Hatfields and McCoys, maybe? Something like that with, you know, two families who are at war with each other. But in this case, you've got one family that is well-heeled and one that was their tenant who they mistreated, which is very Grant. Accidentally maybe accidentally on purpose massacred yep it's like oh we want our land so you're our tenants nope we're kicking you off and we're sending you to the new world oh oops plague ship wah wah aye we need your lands for sheep the one thing that i did not remember and am pleased that we hit this story this week is that we wind up with our our villain searching for the Templar's treasure. And we find him in Rosalind Chapel where he finds the Templar's treasure. There's all this gold and such. But there's also a box. What's and he in the op- box? Right, he opens the box. And what the box is, basically, the Templars had co-opted, or possibly vice versa, the Order of St. Dumas system. And they had a hypnosis thing and a crystal that let you turn anyone at least briefly into an Azrael. Uh, turns out, though, you didn't need the crystal. You just needed the parchment, the, the right. plan for the crystal. And seeing this is appropriate for next week's theme, where we will see both the Order of St. Dumas and the Knights Templar again. We're just reading good Azrael stories, right? Yeah, we'll get to that when we get to my little tease for next episode. Okay, okay. I'm I'm staying optimistic. I, I bet they're going to be good stories. But I like that little connection to Dumas, to the Batman lore here. Because it moved away slightly, at least then, from real-world conspiracy theories to something very much in-universe. And again, this was 1998. This is when conspiracy theories were 
the government is hiding extraterrestrials from us. There were, of course, darker conspiracy theories, because there always are darker conspiracy theories. But a lot of conspiracy theories were very much your X-Files conspiracy theories. Alien abductions, secret cabals that were not necessarily anti-Semitic analogies, but were just, we believe the government is way smarter than the government actually is conspiracy theories. You were able to do that now. Nowadays, you can't joke about conspiracy theories anymore because the people who believe in them are all too real and crazy. Yeah, you have an entire wing of a major political party that's nothing but conspiracy lunatics. The uh, conspiracies used to be equal parts right and left, and now whatever left fringe supported conspiracy theories has all just moved to the right. C, E.G., Robert F. Kennedy Jr. What a fucker. Anywho, Scottish connection. Um, I, I will also say the other bit of this that made me immediately think Bond was when Bruce and Alfred are being followed and there's this car chase with them driving and the car is chasing Alfred. They're shooting at them. They're swerving around a big VW mini mini bus. It, it has a very Bondy sort of car chase. I'm surprised that the, that we didn't get a ton of Alfred here. Batman stories in the UK. I feel like should have Alfred prominently figured and not just there making the occasional joke. Uh, at least Alfred having a holiday. Yes. I mean, he got to go to a party without Bruce because Bruce was off doing Batman stuff. Quietly does a, a particularly good job with that car chase uh, yes. and the sense of movement and and almost the physics of the cars and where they're going and, and everything. Uh, the facial expressions of the people in the bus. Visually, this is a real delight. Uh, it's got some real pacing problems in terms of when the villain shows up and this relationship with his sister and his motivations and the weird stuff with turning his his stooges into Azrael's. The story's a little bit all over the place, but as a as a Scotsman, you think he would have just leaned more into just, I don't know, not so obscure Scottish lore. And I also felt like our villain uses the system parchment on himself and on his three henchmen. Bruce takes out one of them when they're trying to derail and gas all the people on this train. And that guy, when Bruce has him, he's hypnotic. The hypnotism has left him sort of a drooling mess. I can't figure out why that happened to him and didn't happen to the other three. I thought that, oh, this is on a timeline. Normal people aren't meant to have this happen to them, that Azraels are bred. And so after a while, if you do this to you, if someone does this to you, you wind up in a vegetative state because your brain isn't meant to hold the system. But I was completely off because that does not seem to be the way it was. That would have given us more of a hook and more of a a clock that this villain is trying to do this 
before he is brain damaged, but he so believes in his family's vendetta against Bruce's ancestors that he's willing to chance it to secure his victory. Yeah, that would have been an interesting thread to follow. Did get a lot of exposition from him. Yeah, that guy liked to talk. This is why I wear the plague mask. For a writer who wrote as much Batman as he did, and who in general wrote a really great Batman in so many places, this is late in Grant's time with Batman. Grant has been writing Batman at this point since the late 80s. Batman gets taken out like a chump a couple of times in here. Like he keeps not watching his back, and people keep sneaking up behind him. The same guy, twice, cold cocks him. Is this a you take Batman out of Gotham? He doesn't quite know what to do with himself. Well, hey, in the next story, he gets uh, gassed on a few occasions. Oh, yeah. We'll get there, but I will say that, that is, that's a story from the early 80s. Batman isn't quite as infallible in the 70s and 80s as he is in the 90s. But we're going to get there shortly because I think we're about wrapping up on this one. This is a trifle. It's a fun little trifle with some great art. And as you said, like there's a so much exposition in this book. This is 64 pages and there's 15 to 20 pages of Scottish history, Templar history, fictitious Scottish history of these clans, which I'm sure is inspired by real events, but I don't think either of these families are real families. So there's just a lot of talking heads in this story. Yes, lots of talking. The chief bad guy here is um, is a fun design, even if nothing maybe else quite works with him. Yeah, I like the Scottish garb and the, the plague mask is creepy. This just could have used a little like, can can we maybe make this more of a, Batman chasing a villain across Scotland and less breaking up the history of the Sliths and the Clan MacDove over the course of three, four to five page short chapters and have just done it in one fell swoop. Yes. But by no means bad. This is by no means bad. No, we, we have read bad. This is not that. And I wish we had spent more time with with Shona, the sister. Because again, she just pops up at the beginning and then pops back up in the end. I would have felt more when she sacrifices herself to stop her brother if we'd gotten to know her character at all. Or if she had been some help during this, for lack of a better word, mission, right? We've got a bunch of info dumping from Oracle. Why couldn't she have done that? In the end, yeah, her bird's... Her falcons take the parchment with the Azrael formula and tear it in half and fly off with it. So her birds wound up doing as much to stop the whole thing as she did. Now the birds are going to become Azrael's. I would read that comic. (laughs) I mean, Crypto the Superdog, Ace the Bathound, and two Azrael Hawks? That's a, a 
Justice League of animals that I would be all over reading about. I think on that note, it's time for Batman the Scottish Connection on the big board. Generally speaking, we've accepted that trifles live in the 150s. An inoffensive trifle is somewhere in the 150s to the 170s, yes? Yeah. I think this falls in that area. Here's a here's a, a spot with something in some ways similar. At 158, we have Catwoman when in Rome. Hey, another European vacation for one of our characters. But again, is a story that is gorgeous to look at, the Tim Sale art there. But the story itself is just kind of there. It doesn't really tell us much about the characters. It's there as a backdoor prequel to Hush to establish Loeb's view of the Riddler. But it doesn't do much in that story. It fills in a gap that never needed to be filled in. But it sure is pretty. It sure is pretty. Yeah, I'd probably put this higher. It does not go above Batman 89 at 149. Uh, no. I might not even put it above Batman Grendel at 151. I agree. I was setting it a, what I thought would be at least a non-controversial ceiling with Batman 89. Yeah, I wouldn't put it above Batman Grendel. Batman Grendel is another story with... Supporting characters that are introduced just for that story. But despite some of the problems with it, the two women in Batman Grendel are better fleshed out than either Shona or her brother. Secret of the Waiting Graves is shorter. And it's hard to compare something that is an 18-page short with a 64-page one-off. But Secret of the Waiting Graves is the first Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams Batman story. It also has a weird sort of supernaturally twist to it, but it is much more straightforward. It takes its plot and it kind of just goes. It doesn't meander like this does. If we had just covered the three Underworld Unleashed issues without all of the the supplementary Batman one-shot and that Secret Files... I think Underworld might have beaten it, but when you add in all of the windiness from Underworld Unleashed, I don't think that it beats this. So I think this is going to be 154 in between Secret of the Waiting Graves and Underworld Unleashed. Sounds good. Our final story of the night is The Lazarus Affair. This is Batman Volume 1, numbers 332 to 335. The writer is Marv Wolfman, with pencils by Irv Novik and Don Newton, inks by Frank McLaughlin, Steve Mitchell, and Jonathan Salardo, colors by Adrienne Roy, letters by Ben Oda and Todd Klein, and edited by Paul Levitz. The cover date is February to May of 1981. What starts out as what looks like corporate warfare against Wayne Enterprises turns into an adventure that will take Batman and Talia across Europe and Asia as they search for the mastermind behind the plan to bankrupt Bruce Wayne. So we said it back when we were talking about Scottish Connection a minute ago, but this is 1981. This is peak Roger Moore Bond. 
And if Son of the Demon, which you've talked about before, is Rambo meets Batman, this is name your favorite more Bond meets Batman. This is globetrotting. This is wild set pieces. This is skiing and island headquarters and a mysterious international businessmen working for mysterious criminal organizations. This is so very, very Bond. That it is. For both good and ill. And yeah, we were talking about uh, not being surprised by any kind of reveals. This has to be the least surprising reveal. Oh, oh yeah. The fact that, oh, the mysterious figure who is bankrolling the villain who is, you know, trying to shut down Wayne, who somehow knows various secrets about Bruce Wayne when Talia happens to be hanging out around Bruce at this point. Hmm. Could it hmm. be Satan? Nope. The demon's head. It's like, yeah, of course it's freaking Raish. Who else is it going to be? Uh, and the story called The Lazarus Affair? Yeah. Raish yeah. popping up? Yeah. Not a shock. Now, this is fairly early in Rachel Ghoul's stories. I, I'm not saying it is not a complete dead freaking giveaway, but you got to think Raish was introduced in 19, oh, in 1972. But in the intervening years, in between that first Rachel Ghoul story and here, he had only appeared really in three other stories. It's not shocking, but it's much less shocking now because we know all of these things. That this is a race who came back once in the Lazarus Pit. Then we see the story where he escapes from jail. We see him as the judge in Where Were You the Night Batman Was Killed? And then that story with the League of Assassins that we covered. There's a couple of other like one-offs in there, but he really has only been in three major stories. And his powers, if you want to call him that, definitely in flux at this point. Yes, as is Talia's background. Marv Wolfman, who wrote this, clearly didn't go to Denny O'Neill. I was like, hey, how did you intend some of this stuff to work? Because... A, Raish has additional supernatural abilities, and Wolfman has Talia as 150 years old being kept youthful by Raish. When O'Neill comes back and does Birth of the Demon, he says Talia was born in the early 70s because he met her mother at Woodstock. So it clearly doesn't line up with what Wolfman had intended. Uh. You'd forgotten that one, didn't you? As with all things, I forget. Raish at Woodstock. Oh, yeah, okay. Ah, it is groovy, detective. Come, you should see the beautiful marijuana that we grow on Infinity Island. My slave army beneath the surface of the island grows the dankest weed. Only the dankest. The first issue of this is very different 
than the back three. The first one is a much more traditionally Batman and Gotham story. Wolfman is loving names in this book. Gregorian Falstaff. I don't think who was a Wolfman creation. I think he was created by the the creative team before Wolfman because he'd been apparently been around for a while. But I do not believe that his assistant, Carlisle Krugerrand, had appeared before this. You mean uh, Greg Nazi coin is not in the comic books? No, that was a new character. Ah, who knew? I saw that name. It was like, oh, oh, Marv, you're just reveling in these names. A hundred dollars to the first creator who uh, who names a villain Greg Nazi coin. It is surprising to me that this is the end of Wolfman's first run on Batman because it feels like this story by the end of this story it's setting up a new status quo and then he's like just off the book and it also made some sense because he was writing this he also had less than a year before launched new teen titans so he was writing the book where robin was featured prominently which is why i was surprised at the end of this bruce and dick make peace and dick's like yeah i'm gonna hang around for a while it's like, but wait he's living in new york as a member of the titans right now i thought that this was going to be wolfman finding a way to separate dick from bruce so he could have him on the titans full time which he was this is though a very angsty fraught relationship between batman and robin which is how wolfman writes that relationship he Throughout Titans, he wrote Year Three. He wrote A Lonely Place of Dying. He really plays up Dick's angst at the way he and Bruce interact with each other. That's a hallmark of the way Wolfman writes Dick Grayson. If you read Wolfman Dick Grayson, Bruce is like the worst dad ever. And what you have to kind of accept is that Dick is 18 years old right here, trying to, no pun intended, spread his wings. And most 18-year-olds have an issue with their father figure. When your father figure is friggin' Batman. Yeah, it's going to be a deal. Yeah. So there's a lot of that here. It's a lot of Dick wanting Batman to listen to him and to, take him into his confidence and to value his opinion. And when that is mostly, listen, Talia's bad news. You need to kick her to the curb. Boy, I have urges. Leave me alone. And also, I'm not stupid. I think she's up to something. You keep your friends close and your enemies closer. So maybe you need to trust me, kid. As opposed to going and running off to my other ex and dragging her into this. Because, yeah, what does Dick do? He's like, I need someone to listen to me who understands Batman. 
I'm going to go and get Catwoman. I'm going <laughs> to drag her along because there's not going to be any problem when Bruce is making out with Talia all the time to have Catwoman come by. She's not going to at all be upset by any of this. Oh, Dickie boy, you are clearly 18 and don't understand how any of this stuff should work. But it does give you some fun pair-ups, right? Some fun dynamics. Oh, yeah. And especially when Dick and Selina wind up having to team up with King Faraday, DC's more dapper version of Nick Fury. Spy Nick Fury, because we have Sergeant Rock for, you know, Nazi fighting Nick Fury. Nick Fury is such a powerful, important character. DCS have two guys to equal one Nick Fury. Hmm. Well, no King Faraday is ever going to be better than New Frontier King Faraday. I always, I did like uh, Checkmate King Faraday too, being uh, Amanda Waller's White Bishop when she was White Queen. But that's a much later King Faraday. And one we will cover someday when we talk about some of the Greg Rucka Checkmate. I always need more Greg Rucka. Aside from Death of the Maidens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Death of the Maidens was a big swing that didn't quite connect. But I'll, as we've said, I'll always take a big swing that doesn't quite work over playing it completely safe. I will point out this story has one of my least favorite. It's not just comic books. You see it in a lot of genre fiction tropes. At the beginning of this story, you see that Gregorian Falstaff, who is Rachel Ghoul's cat's paw, is creating these mutates, these sort of big lumbering monsters of Hugo Strange looking mofos. And the first one of these guys beats Bruce down pretty soundly. After that, every time these guys show up, they become easier and easier to take out. And you see that anytime when you introduce like, oh, this is an unstoppable alien and it's leading a invasion force, or this is the super vampire that is unstoppable and it's waiting to release its entire clan. When the rest of the alien invasion fleet arrives, when all of those super vamps come up, people are just beating them like they're nothing special. Did you really need the mutates? I don't understand why the mutates were a thing in this story. No, I mean, I guess if you had the League, it would have spoiled it too early. And same, if it had been Ubu, it would have been too obvious. But they didn't need to, you know, address themselves as League of Assassins. They could have been using just ninjas or just big guys. You didn't need this whole, oh, they're unstoppable mutates that we can't defeat. But after issue one, we then go into full roger moore bond plot we go from gotham to switzerland where bruce has to infiltrate a international criminal bank where it's like oh yeah no don't worry mr krugerand your money is safe here you know the mafia uses us hive uses us and then it winds up with batman on rocket skis skiing down a mountain pursued by other rocket skiers and then you have Bruce and Talia having to fly low over communist China and cross the waters to get to Hong Kong. Well, and we got then, a great discussion of Chinese politics and uh, larger geopolitical repercussions there. Yep, 1981 and all the, the issues and 
talking about the handover of Hong Kong in 1997. That's one of those things, of course, 1997, I was 17. I wasn't paying attention to that stuff. It's one of these things that amazes me going back how much that was a thing. How many stories from this period talked about how Hong Kong was going to be handed over from the British to the Chinese again, and how often that was used as a plot point for something. Uh, that was in one of the Brosnan movies, wasn't it? Yeah, I believe it was as well. We've seen it come up a couple of times in Batman stories at this point. And then we, of course, go from there to an underground city, which is not at all the time machine, Eloy Morlocks sort of thing, where you have the beautiful city with high art and then the slave mines and oh shock of shocks it's Raish. we don't get any reason why Raish is doing much of this other than oh i want to take over weight enterprises because he bought this island that he doesn't even realize he bought i somehow find it strange that yeah bruce might not be the most involved in his day-to-day business dealings but if you bought an entire island in the indian ocean You'd think he would know about that. Uh, Adventures Continue just made the same thing. Yes, I feel like that story might be somewhat inspired by some of this. It would not surprise me. And finally, you get this big old throwdown between Bruce and Raish, and then a Raish supernaturally charged by the Lazarus Pit, where again, Wolfman does not quite know how the Lazarus Pit works. He's got the rage down, but Raish doesn't have, like, fire touch when he comes out of the pit. Yeah, he isn't engulfed in flames and burning everything he touches. That's Clayface 3 who burns everything that he touches. That's his shtick. Uh, We don't talk about Clayface 3, Matt. There is one Clayface. There has only ever been one Clayface. To speak of anything else is heresy. Two things that I liked, and they both kind of uh, involve... I guess it's the the second story here. We've got Catwoman and Robin uh, trying to infiltrate, I guess, this drug organization. They are discovered and they're strapped down. The end of 333, uh, we got a bad guy who says, inject them with enough cocaine that even the Lord himself would be helpless to quiet their pain. And I guess... For 334, they're like, oh, that line doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, So instead of cocaine, they just say drugs. (laughs) Just some drug that might cause a lot of pain. And then when they spring into action in 334, apparently this whole time, both Catwoman and Robin have been wearing life-sized, realistic masks of, like, flesh over their normal, like, cape and or cowl and or... Uh, Robinette and they just like take off these giant masks and I'm like that was weird (laughs) and Batman does the same thing at the beginning of 333 when he invades the bank pretending to be Krugerand and they they get him into the safe deposit box room and like ah you must be Batman yeah and he he takes off the the Krugerand suit and he's got the Batman costume on underneath like that's fine. And then he pulls off his realistic lifelike Krugerrand mask and he's in his cowl. Speaking of Mission Impossible masks, uh, <laughs> you going to see Mission Impossible this weekend? Indeed I am. 
Oh, very good. Very good. Got uh, got our tickets for Saturday. I am looking forward to it. Before we get any further, I do have one important bit of business to, to add to this episode. As Batman and Talia are swimming across the, the straits to get from mainland China to Hong Kong, they encounter, guess what? Sharks! Shark, shark watch! watch! First time in a while, we got a shark watch! Yes, Batman, once again, fights sharks. Quintessential Bat-Bond story. Exactly. Again, very Bond. Quickly, I'll stab the one shark so the other sharks fall upon it. We got sharks, we got laser guns, we got face masks. There was one bit where Talia is constantly using tranquilizers or shooting people into unconsciousness. I have this feeling like this was done plot first. So Wolfman was writing it and then it was like, oh, I got this art back and Talia is clearly killing people and I can't have her killing people and still working with Batman. So she shot them into unconsciousness. Yes. Yeah, that's how that works. I also found it interesting that King Faraday gets involved in this whole thing because 10 years before his partner, Archer Templeton, great name, had disappeared. And he was one of these people taken by Raish and imprisoned in his mines. We never really get the the answer to did, did Faraday find him? And Raish keeps sending out as, as Templeton tries to escape and as Robin, Selena, and Faraday arrive, they're sucked up by these bubbles from the prisoner. Well, Marv, you were watching the prisoner before this, weren't you? With the <laughs> bubbles that come and take you back to the island. Wearing your influences on your sleeve in this one. Roger Moore Bond and the prisoner. And some unfortunate yellow peril in that scene in the opium den. That there was some stuff in there that was like, oh, that's that's uncomfortable. But we got a one-page Jim Gordon story out of it. We did. That was in there, and that was fun. And then a, a Jason Bard short as well, which the first two backups in this tie into the main story. And then in issue three, it's like, yeah, we're just going to throw in another backup. And the main story is one page shorter than the other ones. So, yeah, we're going to have a one-page Jim Gordon story to balance out that page before we go into the backup. Yeah. It was a cute little, like, Gordon has to solve a mystery. It had that Batman's Mystery Casebook, Encyclopedia Brown, sort of like, you can solve this case along with Jim Gordon sort of vibe to it. It was fun. It was fun. We didn't talk about it, but there's a lot of... You know, Wayne Enterprises financial wrangling in here. That's fine. And then you get to the end and it's like, Raish is like, yes, what I, I really had no desire for Batman. I was really after Bruce Wayne because he bought my island. And I figured out you were Batman along the way. That doesn't line up with the stuff Denny O'Neill was doing. Uh, I had a little bit of Lucius Fox drama. Yeah. Early appearance of then Tim, now Jace Fox. All the Batman supporting cast of that era show up here. And again, it like that when Raish is, my men will attack Wayne Enterprises. Who will they kill first? Your secretary, Lucius Fox? No, Alfred. He'll be the first one to go. And that's when Bruce like, he hulks out. 
as we've said, don't threaten Alfred. No. Doesn't end well for you. I think that about wraps it on this one. Oh, that means it's time. But Batman, the Lazarus Affair on the big board. The first story, it's not as good as this. The ceiling on this, absolutely, is where were you the night Batman was killed? That's 91. That is considerably higher than this will wind up. But that is has a similar vibe to it in that it's a late 70s, early 80s, wacky Batman story with all kinds of, wow, that's that's wild, man. That's wild. Uh, where do we currently have Son of the Demon? That's down at 209. This is better than that. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking the high end of Trifle Town. Right now, Batman 66 meets Wonder Woman 77 is at 113. Well, I don't think this is quite as good as that. Again, it's another race story. It's a globe-trotting race story. So there are some similarities there. I think it's closer to that than it is to Son of the Demon. Yes. Because there is some good interpersonal drama here. The stuff between Bruce and Dick is good. The stuff between Bruce and Talia, as he he clearly wants this relationship to work, but also can't fully trust her, no matter what he says to Dick. Selena questioning like why she doesn't like feeling sort of jealous around Talia, but it, it never turns into a cat fight. It never gets obnoxious, but there is this interpersonal drama of Selena sort of wrestling with her feelings. There's some good character moments there. Batman year three. That's below Wonder Woman 77. That's at 121. Another Wolfman, but also I don't think the Bruce Dick stuff is better there. Also because Wolfman had then been writing those characters for another seven or eight years. So he had more of a feel for the characters. While this is decent, it is silly in places. Listen, Where Were You the Night Batman Was Killed is very silly. But it wears that silliness on its sleeve, it embraces it, and it tells a bunch of really fun little short stories. That's why it winds up as high as this. I'm thinking somewhere in... I mean, Scottish Connections in the one is 154. I'm thinking this is in the 130s, 140s. Let's see. Uh, well, 130 right now is Superman Annual number three, Armageddon 2001. I think it's below that. Yes. Crisis of Infinite Scoobies, 132. I think it's below that. I think it might be above the first Jason Todd and Killer Croc story. That is longer. That wanders a bit more than this. While the first part is distinct from the other three. It sets up a bunch of stuff and it pays off a bunch of plot lines that had led up to this point to set up this story. I think this is a more, has a more clear through line to it than the first Jason Todd story at 140. You want to say that this is the new 140? Yeah, because that puts it below the first 
time how Batman and Superman met, which I think is just a lot of fun. So yeah, 140 it is. Ta-da. And that that's another one in the in the bank. That's it for this week. Next week, Robert Secundus returns to the show for three stories featuring the avenging angel Azrael, including three good stories, right? Right, right, right. Good stories. Yeah, you're not allowed to do that because this is including Curse of the White Knight, which no! you and Rob selected. You don't know me. That one was on you. I would not have selected that. That one is on you. So fuck you very much, good buddy. <laughs> uh, the people closest in your life continue to do violence to you. But until that one, uh, we'd like to thank our Patreon backers. Dan Grote, June, conduit of outdated joke names. Jen Kemen. Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum. <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley. Go Utes. Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus. Bobby Two Bucks going to be here live and in person next week. Tim Rooney, Giorgio Sreggioli. David Wheel, and Alexander Wheel for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and on ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat Books, for my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.